0: May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Someday God shall judge between the nations, the prophet Isaiah dares to sing. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. As Walter Brueggemann notes, This anticipation is not unlike Martin Luther King Jr.'s I-have-a-dream speech. There seems such a long way to go to get to those plowshares and pruning hooks. And like King, we might need to believe that such a future is there even if we may not see it this side of the kingdom of God. And like King... Maybe the most faithful response to a culture consumed by violence is to take seriously the deep claims Jesus places upon us in his Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, he says. And if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. It was this radical ethic of nonviolence that informed Martin Luther King Jr. and those who followed him. And it is this ethic that the theologian Stanley Hauerwas claims is the heart of the gospel. So Hauerwas writes, Jesus does not promise that if we turn the other cheek, we will avoid getting hit again. Non-retaliation is not a strategy to get what we want by other means. Rather, Jesus calls us to the practice of non-retaliation because that is the form that God's care took for us on the cross. And I believe Hauerwas is fundamentally right here. Though his position, it's a pacifist position, is one most easily maintained in theory and in peacetime. And so I need to pay attention to the witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian who also affirmed the centrality of nonviolence in the life and teaching of Jesus, but who still found that he had little choice but to participate in the German resistance movement. Bonhoeffer was involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler, something he chose to do in full knowledge that he was violating a gospel call to nonviolence, yet convinced that to do otherwise would be to allow a greater evil to continue. And so these matters get complex, don't they? I was born in 1961, right at the end of the post-war baby boom meaning that in a real sense, mine is the last generation to have grown up under the shadow cast by the Second World War. Born in England in 1932, my father was too young to have served in that war, and both of my grandfathers were too old. My dad spent most of the war years in boarding schools or at his uncle's farm in Scotland. On those rare occasions when he was able to go home to London, he often had to sleep in a bomb shelter built in the backyard, something my rather single-minded grandfather refused to do because he deemed the beds in the bomb shelter to be uncomfortable. My childhood nightmares were of monsters and alligators under my bed, My father's were of Nazis under his. When I was in elementary school, our family rule was that after school you could watch one half hour of television. And I generally opted for Hogan's Heroes. If you don't know it, it was an American sitcom set in a German prisoner of war camp, staffed by entirely hapless German soldiers who episode after episode were outwitted by the very clever Colonel Hogan and his little band of equally clever men. Once my dad sat down to watch it with me, but he lasted only a few minutes. He told me that such a show would never work on the BBC, as people in the UK would see nothing funny about Nazis and prison camps. It was just too, too close. All through my high school years, our family routine was to meet together in the family room at 10 p.m. to have a cup of tea, if we were fortunate, a cookie, and to watch the nightly episode of M.A.S.H. I once asked my father what made that show so very different from Hogan's Heroes, and he told me that it was because on M.A.S.H., They were basically telling the joke on themselves. I suspect, though, that it was also because MASH didn't gloss over the realities of war. People died, tears were shed, and characters lost their bearings. In classic sitcom style, most of the characters on the show were in their own way quite dysfunctional, But there is always this sense that their dysfunction was a result of being thrown into something violent and horrific beyond comprehension. And so there were the surgeons drinking endless martinis made up from their homemade moonshine brewed in their tent. There was Radar O'Reilly from Otamwa, Iowa, still sleeping with his teddy bear clinger in drag, trying desperately to get a psychiatric exemption and be sent home. In fact, all of them wanted nothing more than to go home for it all to end. And although MASH was ostensibly set in the Korean War of the early 1950s, it began to air while the Vietnam War was very much on the forefront of our cultural consciousness. And what MASH managed to reveal about the madness of war wasn't lost on its audience. Vietnam was the other war of which my generation was very much aware, even in Canada, even as a kid. There were signs of war all around us, clips on the TV news. It was the first televised war. Pictures on the cover of Life and Time magazine, including that famous photograph of the young woman burning with napalm, running naked down a country road. Anti-war songs on the radio, peace sign buttons everywhere. We heard of these people called draft dodgers, who'd slipped across the border, grown their hair long, and joined the hippie counterculture, which for three or four summers in a row, actually took over Memorial Park right across, across Osborne from here. We all had this sense that Vietnam was a disaster. It was an unwinnable war that was taking the lives of tens of thousands. It was during my years as a university student that I first wandered into this church building in hunt for a new church home, And what I saw first were these flags. As a student, a high school student at the Mennonite Brethren Collegiate Institute, I'd been introduced to a theology of nonviolence and a corresponding theology disentangling church from nationhood. And so these flags really threw me. In time, I managed to see past the flags, and I stayed partly because I discovered there'd been a long dissenting movement within Anglicanism, but partly because they kind of disappeared. And maybe that's happened for you. It was in my last parish before this one that I was faced with some of the harder stories, harder realities of this question of war and peace. And it's given me a new framework from from within which to see these flags that hang here. That parish was a mixed Anglican and Lutheran congregation, which meant that it included people who carried stories from both sides of the Second World War, people who'd grown up in Germany under Nazism, whose fathers had served in that army, in fact, and people who'd been members of the Canadian military and had served overseas. One man's father had enlisted in the Winnipeg Grenadiers and in 1941 had been sent to be a part of the defense of Hong Kong against the Japanese Army. That defense of Hong Kong lasted three weeks. And for the next four years, the Grenadiers, mostly young and mostly not professional soldiers, just recruits, they were interred in Japanese prisoner of war camps. Many didn't survive, and those who did return came back scarred for life like my friend's father had. That flag is hung there by them. As is so often the case, as they moved through their 70s and 80s, many of these people found that old memories were surfacing with a new force, such that their stories needed to be shared, and I had good ears for stories. One day I was visiting with a woman in her very tidy suburban Silver Heights home. It was about two months after we had buried her husband. He'd been one of those men whose lawns were always absolutely perfect, whose flower beds were completely weed-free, and whose driveways were swept almost impossibly clean all the time. If one of the local kids landed a ball or a Frisbee on his lawn, it was worth their life to go and retrieve it. While I was sitting having tea with his widow, having already shared together in a simple home communion, and she began to talk. You know how Sid was always so fastidious, so fussy, she asked me. Of course, I did. Do you know why he was like that, she said? Well, it turns out that after his death, they'd done an autopsy on his brain, and they found a large abscess caused by a head injury from the war. He spent the rest of his life trying to order and organize everything, she said, to make up for that injury. And I commented that I never would have made that connection Or thought of this man as being a casualty of war. He'd come back, a survivor. We were all casualties, she responded. And then her story flowed. I've told you I served as a nurse in the war, haven't I, Jamie? Well, what I've never told you is that I was on the medical team that attended the liberation of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. I saw what they'd done to those people, hanging on to the fences like skeletons. I saw all those thousands of dead bodies lying in piles. I saw the butcher of Belson as they led him away in handcuffs. And I saw the rooms he used to experiment on those people. After you see that, it's hard to believe in anything like goodness Ever again, And then as quickly as she'd launched into that story, she came back from the memories. She straightened herself up in her chair and offered to refresh my cup of tea. I'm sure I mumbled some kind of a response. I just hope that whatever it was didn't sound too formulaic or comforting in that banal kind of way. I just know that I could see her differently. I could see that fastidious man to whom she'd been married all those years with very different eyes. And I can see these flags differently too. You see, they don't celebrate victory and they don't revel in militaristic triumph. They're like memorial shrouds Paul's placed over coffins at funerals and hung here by shattered and broken men and women to mark all that they lost in that war. Maybe the time will come when they can be moved to a military museum, but that's not going to be a conversation until the last one of those people who hung them here has gone. Until then... Try to see them for what they are, not for what you thought they symbolized. And dare to remember. Remember what war has cost everyone involved. We were all casualties, as that woman said to me. Civilians and soldiers on both sides, men, women, children, all casualties. Remember, too, that hopeful song sung by the prophet Isaiah, Swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Most of all, remember the cross, that most radical act of non-retaliation by which God expressed the deepest of love for us all. Remember and do all you can to live accordingly even in the midst of the complexities of a sometimes all-too-real life. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.